Hello, welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production, all the way to release and reception. Uh, it was my choice, wasn't it, this time? It was, Dan. And uh, uh, I chose this movie, Ride the Eagle. Uh, and you probably have never heard of it. In fact, I guarantee <laughs> you've never heard of it. This is the um, best profile movie we've done on this show, I believe. You think so? That that'd be my guess, anyways. Here and here's actually why I picked it. So like, it's been kind of tough to pick some stuff that's that's new release. It's like we're late in the summer, you know, everything's coming out. There's like Suicide Squad. I could have done that, but I was like, I don't really want to do that. No. Um. But you know what really made me do it is we did an episode on I think it was the first season of the show on First Cow, which was a mm-hmm. really small movie. Um. And I loved doing that episode because it was about like uh, an indie auteur who was doing it. And it's like there's so much sort of passion in that project. Right. Uh, and it was like kind of really fun to research. Uh, and it actually became one of our biggest, it's one of our biggest episodes, uh, which it wasn't at first. Right. When we first did it, it was like, okay, it did okay numbers. But as time has moved on here and we're like a year in some way, it's become basically our biggest episode. And I think part of that is because First Cow has left an imprint like yeah exactly even yeah. though it didn't get any oscar love or any kind of really end of the year love like it, it's a total like film nerd movie and it's it's gonna stick with us i think and i think we kind of predicted that in that episode so yeah it was definitely and i think that the type of people are gonna listen to our show are gonna be into movies like that right 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 uh, and so hopefully they're gonna be into this movie red the eagle it is a small little i guess i don't want to call it a pandemic film but i feel like we it's have a pandemic to, film right it has to be called <laughs> it a does film. it does not want to be but it is yeah and so it tries to um yeah it tries to deny its sort of uh its roots so to speak uh but this is a movie directed by uh, trent o'donnell who's a huge TV director. Uh, he's probably most well-known for his work on The New Girl. Uh, or sorry, New Girl. It's not The New Girl. Yeah. Uh, New Girl, he did what? Uh, 23 episodes, 28 episodes. And in fact, so in his IMDb, it says he did 28 episodes. But later on in some interview, um, Jake basically says he was like integral. Trent was integral to that entire show and the vibe mm-hmm. of the show. So it's he had a huge hand in that, but he's basically directed like I don't know thirty TV series. Like you look at IMDb, it's like insane. Right. Now he doesn't like do like, but he does a fair amount of. It's not like one or two episodes like you normally see from a TV director. It's like seven, eight, ten episodes uh, for twenty plus series. It's kind of crazy. Um, so Trent also did some stuff in AP Bio. The Good Place did three episodes. Brooklyn Nine Nine did three episodes. But there's like his his IMDb is like, like hard to get through. Um, and so, it, you know, it's his movie. He wrote it with Jake Johnson, who is uh, Nick from The New Girl. Like, I can't, I, I'm going to keep on saying The New Girl. I can't stop. Because <laughs> um, you just saw The Suicide Squad, right? Yeah, exactly. Which is really fun. What a good time that was. Um, and so Jake Johnson and Trent uh, wrote this movie together. Um, before we dive into what it's about and stuff like that, I think it's kind of interesting uh, I want to hear your take on Trent O'Donnell a little bit. Have you are you a New Girl fan? Because I think it's um, like really integral to talking about this movie because there's a certain overlap here, obviously yeah. with you know, Nick and everything. Right, right. So Jake Johnson plays Nick Miller, um, arguably the best character on New Girl. And so yeah, I'm a New Girl fan, but I never finished it. I oh, interesting. I I was one of those fans that like my wife and I watched every episode. Uh, 
like week to week basis, probably for the first like four seasons. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then it just, uh, I don't really know what it was. It, I, 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 it's been so long since I've watched an episode. I'm not sure if you can pinpoint, was there something around that point or in season five that might've made <laughs> my wife and I give up on it or just stray from it? Yeah, it's a really it's funny that you ask. Like, I just did an entire rewatch with Pippa here down in Atlanta. We watched every single episode, and this is like okay. the last two months. Um, it is an extremely up and down series. Yeah. Um, it I, I did the exact same thing you did. I loved the show when it first came out. Well, actually, not when it first came out. When it first came on Netflix, this was like 2015, 2016. Okay, uh, as the show was starting to wind down, and I got through probably the first four seasons. Um, and then it's yeah, like the fifth season, it just sort of, it ran its course. I don't know, you know how you'd put it. It just sort of got old and tired, but on the rewatch, I sort of realized that like the strongest season in that show probably is season four. And it's almost like it, by the time you get into season five, it's sort of like, well, why are we spinning our wheels here? Like this, it's already done. Mm-hmm, like the, mm-hmm. the good stuff is over. And as you get towards the end. It, it does it does drag significantly and there's a final season that's like seven seven eight episodes and it's like it, it's okay it's a good sort of um end to the whole thing but like it, it's not vital viewing i wouldn't say wait so uh, when when do jess and nick hook up in the show oh my god like twice they do it at the end of i want to say end of season two uh, which is the worst season, by the way. Season two is the worst season of that, of that show, without a doubt. It completely loses its way. The vibe is off. Uh, the jokes don't land as much. They got like they must have like new writers for season like the end, the back half of season three into season four. I think is probably the best. Um, but yeah, it's an off, off again, on again thing, and then they fly in, end up together, and you're like, this doesn't make any sense. But then they do it. Yeah, like the season four finale is titled "Clean Break." That's when they officially say like we're not going to do this again. I guess maybe I don't know. Okay, and then they come together and they get like married. I guess. Spoiler alert. (laughs) It's fine. Um, But yeah, season. I mean, I'm like season. Yeah, one through four. Like some of these episode titles. I'm like, oh yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. But then season five is just like, I don't, I don't see anything. Yeah. I don't know. It's too bad, but um, that's the nature, especially of like network sitcoms, right? Um. It, I mean, it was not a Netflix or a Hulu show, even though that's where we watched it. It was on Fox. And uh, one of the most interesting things that I read, I didn't know anything about Trent O'Donnell. I, it's pretty commonplace, I think, for even like nerds like us that like pay attention to who's making things. Mm-hmm. Um, like t- Network TV is a completely different ballgame because like Jake Kasdan set up the visual look of New Girl, right? Sure. Um, and but he also had to do it according, I'm sure, to like house style rules um, in Foxland, and it's pretty like the atmosphere and the aesthetic of that show is not what makes it. It's the cast and characters, yeah, exactly. uh, right. So, uh, it, yeah, I, and I and to to start transitioning us back into sure. ride the eagle territory. Um, I feel like that that's kind of that's kind of the vibe I get like they there isn't a strong signature feel to it um because it mm-hmm. it very much feels like there th- this guy O'Donnell has been you know 
doing his regular thing. Um, not only 28 episodes of Newer Girl, a few episodes of The Good Place, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, AP Bio. He had a hit, a couple hit shows in Australia yeah. before he migrated over to LA. Um, the original version of Review, which was adapted in 2014 for US audiences on Comedy Central, Andy Daly. Um, haven't seen the Australian version, but I absolutely adore the US one. And he also had another show called No Activity um, that was a hit and adapted for CBS All Access, now known as Paramount+. Plus. Um, but I don't know anything about that. So it's very much, but like, he's like kind of your traditional standard sitcom director. Yes. Uh, at least, at least in like the single camera world, right? Like he doesn't, yeah. it's, he's not a multicam guy. Uh, and so he's not going to, um, it's not going to be, feel as much of like a play when he does something outside of the sitcom world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you, it kind of feels here in Ride the Eagle, like it's just super brightly lit, which makes sense considering uh, that they wanted to shoot it in Yellowstone. Yes. And it takes place uh, in the mountains. Oh, uh, Yosemite, Yosemite. Yeah, Yosemite, sorry. I just had a friend that got back from Yellowstone. So Both why wonderful that. parks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I've never been either. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's kind of the deal. I feel like when TV directors uh, make the leap to, to feature film, would you say that's a fair assumption that it's like there's not going to be a lot of panache? There's not going to be a lot of really cinema centric choices. Um, you, th- he, it really feels like he was 100%, maybe 90% relying on his cast and 10% relying on the vistas. Yeah, that's a, you know, it's funny when I watched the movie, I didn't notice that. But like now that we're talking about it, I'm looking back like, oh, yeah, this was shot like TV. Like, yeah. This is not cinematic, really, in any traditional sense. Now, did it have to be? I mean, not really. I mean, it's a very small film, right? Um, I mean, let's. I'll do the plot line real quick. Uh, so, Jake Johnson. It's essentially him and his dog, and there's a few other characters in it. Uh, but a man's estranged mother uh, dies and leaves him a conditional inheritance. Uh, before he can move into her picturesque cabin in Yosemite, he has to complete her to-do list and step into his mother's world as she tries to make amends from beyond the grave. His mother is Susan Sarandon. Uh, who basically is only exists in a videotape that she leaves him. Um, so it's a very small film. I love the subgenres you have here, by the way. Oh, thank you. Uh, Twee Wave, Plaidcore, <laughs> and Cabin Cinema. I love Cabin <laughs> Cinema. Um, yeah, so it's a very small film. Um, and um, did you find budget information on this? No, it's it's not out there. But they they financed it themselves, O'Donnell that, and Johnson. A, yeah, that's a huge point. Like, they, there's no studio involved here. It is them essentially writing checks, as they say in one of the interviews. Um, so it, it, it's. I mean, I think you can we say it's like a micro budget film. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's Which call it makes a sense. Which yeah. makes sense because Johnson also has experience working with Joe Swanberg from the mumble yeah. mumblecore genre yes. in both uh, Drinking Body Buddies, which I think we're both a big fan, big oh, big fans of. Love that movie. Um, and then some other movie that I didn't even know, a Netflix film. What's it called? All what is it? All in maybe or something. All it's in. A Win it all. Movie. Win it all. Yeah. yeah. Which I haven't seen yet. But um, now I want to see since Keegan Michael Key and Joe Latrulio are also in it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, oh man, you're bringing up a lot and I, I, I want to respond to everything. Um, <laughs> Go over. I'll, I'll shut up for a bit. No, 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 no. You're, you're, you're good. I, it's like, it's a super small film and like, it feels small. It's shot like a TV kind of series. Um, that's all plain to see. It is interesting. This mumble core angle because like, 
I don't know about your. I hated that subgenre of film, like absolutely despised it. <laughs> uh, it's almost like I created a persona that would be completely against that and whatever it was. It's just like I hated it. Like it's like anti-hipster or something. I'm a weirdo. Uh, in any event, then I saw Drinking Buddies. Um, maybe I, the first time I saw it, I absolutely hated it. And then I saw it again. <laughs> And it became one of my favorite movies of all time. In fact, I think it's in my top like 20 from that decade. Wow. Uh, there's just, yeah, there's something about it. And I think there's a huge connection here to that because I feel like a lot of this, because it was self-financed, because it's very small, the stakes are very low here. Mm-hmm. Um, they, it was completely filmed during the pandemic, uh, essentially kind of moving the conception of it a bit. Uh, Nick, or sorry, Nick, uh, Jake Johnson got a dog, Nora. She was a, like a, um, a retired guide dog. He has this dog. It basically goes on about how smart she is. Uh, he wasn't doing anything. Uh, he's friends with Trent O'Donnell, obviously from new girl. Uh, he wasn't doing anything. And I think Trent had like one friend who had film equipment that wasn't being used. So it was like one thing led to another and they're like, well, let's do a movie with me and this dog. <laughs> Uh, and kind of it snowballed from there. Like Susan Sarandon was involved immediately. J.K. Simmons wasn't involved at all in the beginning. It was just this small idea of um, let's just do something during a pandemic. We're all like kind of getting cabin fever, so to speak. Uh, and sort of, you know, let's let's make some art is essentially what it, what it comes down to. And I think that like, I don't know, I, as someone who is tangentially creative, and who spends a lot of my free time doing creative stuff, there is a certain sort of boldness that is required to make something, especially outside a studio system. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, it, I, was it ballsy? Not necessarily, but it's sort of like, it's like ballsy and boredom at the same time. Right. Uh, it's definitely how, seemed uh, born out of boredom. Yeah, exactly. And so um, whether that's a good or a bad thing, I mean, we'll see as we sort of talk about it a little bit more. Um, I don't know, like what, what, what would you relate this to? Like, what is another, would you call this, is it mumblecore? It's not really mumblecore, right? No, it's, it's not quite, it's not quiet enough. Correct. Yeah. To be mumblecore. But, uh, and it, I mean, you do, it may, it does make you wonder, like this movie wouldn't exist if we didn't have a pandemic, no, right? Would never um, happen. It would never happen. So it's hard to kind of imagine, um, like where this movie really fits in um because you know the last time we had a pandemic we didn't have like a filmmaking industry like we do today it was it was nascent the last last time we had one and so i think that there's a there's a while there this is a small film it's not a quiet one and while it's a yeah micro budget film it's not um it's not really either even a subversive uh i would say it's a pretty like p- playful low-key like the creators o'donnell and johnson seem to readily admit it in their press interviews um that this is you know they're not trying they're not really trying to say much and so i think i feel like that's maybe where the the mumble core connection is strongest because that was yeah. one of the tenets of that whole subgenre of filmmaking was like we're not we're not trying to do message movies we're not trying to you know uh be blockbusters we're not even really trying to be like indie darlings we're just trying to you know make what we can with what we have available and that's where 
that's exactly where this came in. Like if O'Donnell didn't know somebody who had film equipment, if they didn't get lucky sending uh, the script to Sarandon and Simmons, like none of these pieces would have come together to the point where then you have two distributors um, going after it. Um, it maybe it would have gotten made um, with you know lesser known names in those supporting roles, um, but uh, it, I don't I don't know if really it would have attracted all that attention without those two pretty big you know award winning names in the supporting cast. Yeah, I mean like Jake Johnson's not going to attract and right, like, <laughs> right. He's not he he's such a fascinating dude too because um, he's a guy who's had a career that is all over the place. Like he obviously new girl, he that was a big thing for him. But then drinking buddies, let's be cops. Remember that movie? Oh, it's such a travesty. Yeah, like he was in that, but that was big. He's in Jurassic World. Yeah, uh, I mean he was, he's friends he's, with Colin Trevorrow, the director of that that new franchise, new Jurassic franchise, because he was in the 2012 movie Safety Not Guaranteed, which was oh, yeah. Trevorrow's kind of entrance to the scene. And then he plays opposite Tom Cruise <laughs> in The Mummy, which is the failed kickoff of the Dark Universe. <laughs> from universal i think right mm-hmm. um he's a weird guy and like he i've i have this weird thing on youtube there's a show called off camera you ever heard of it no it's a it's an interview show shot in black and white it's very pretentious um but i love every second of it uh and he's basically he sits down with entertainers and actors it's the same interview i forget his name uh but jake johnson has an episode and i've watched these interviews with him and it's like little snippets i've interviews with him for probably like maybe 20 minutes total dude is really really interesting like he dropped out of high school uh with the permission of his mother uh he's from chicago uh and like completely dropped out of high school he's like i'm not gonna do any work why would i do this his mom's like okay go ahead and do it ended up like working for his grifter uncle for a while uh and like really kind of seems like a he's the type of person who clearly does exactly what he wants to do uh, and he was talking about being on the mummy and he was like, I just wanted to be near Tom Cruise and see what it was like to be near someone like that. But he's very adamant about not wanting fame. He's like, he does not want to be famous. He does not want to be a leading man. He's like, I just like to show up and act and do my thing and make sure that it is fun and playful uh, and then go do something else. Uh, and so like, you can see a lot of that and how this movie came into being. This is, this reminds me the way that it kind of like connects to Momocore to me is this kind of what you said, making do with what you have, but there's also this element of play involved. Yeah. Where it's like these guys are, yeah, these are really creative people. These are people that um sure they're successful as a director, they're successful as an actor, but you can kind of tell, especially in Jake Johnson's perspective, he doesn't do it necessarily for the money or success. Uh, that helps a lot. Uh, he clearly does it just because he loves to act and he loves to put himself in different creative situations to sort of act, you know, find a way to act, act through it. Um, and so I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of that, at least in the conception of this. And we talk about like, you know, how, you know, how did they get J.K. Simmons and Susan Strandon involved? It's like, interesting. It's like, <laughs> yeah. It's like, so how? Like, what's going on? <laughs> O'Donnell uh, did an interview with Slash Film um, in which he kind of breaks that down. Uh, first off, Susan Sarandon, they wrote this part of the main character, Leaf's deceased mother, with her in mind. Like, they literally wrote in the script, like, a Sarandon type woman. And yeah. 
they, you know, I mean, just like you were saying, like there, there is a boldness here, even if it's very kind of low key and muted, um, where they just thought like, well, we got to at least start there. So they, they send the script uh, out to, uh, Sarandon and she's like, okay, I'm in. Uh, it's, it's as simple as that. And, uh, they go out to New York and shoot her, her scenes, which are just, you know, they like literally went to her apartment and just like made it up to look like this character's, uh, place. And, uh, it, it, I mean, it's, it seems like such a, a wild thing to imagine for, you know, a first time feature filmmaker, um, even if somebody that, you know, has a longstanding, uh, you know, foot in the door from um doing television work but uh similar kind of deal with jk simmons o'donnell clearly the kind of guy that you know probably makes a lot of connections with uh, guest actors on episodes of tv and at some point he uh told you know asked just asked jk simmons for his phone number just like out of the you know typical protocol of like contacting an agent or publicist and Simmons gave it to him because he is that kind of guy. And so he just emailed JK directly um, with this role, Carl, um, Susan Sarandon's character's uh, kind of um, new lover before, shortly before she dies. And he says, uh, yeah, this sounds good. I like it. And O'Donnell's like, okay, so what works for you? Thinking like, there's no way I'm going to be able to schedule both Sarandon and Simmons. And, but because it's the pandemic, like, Simmons is like I I don't have anything going on. I'm literally wide open and like the pieces start falling into place. So it's pretty impressive uh like I said you, you had to have those network connections in the beginning to be able to like do things like send your script to Susan Sarandon and get JK Simmons direct email address but <laughs> uh the fact that you know they were the o- one of the only couple of guys trying to make a movie and this is not this is pre-vaccine pandemic yeah. like they are like literally everything's shut down um and yet because they're doing it kind of off the grid uh they have a crew of like they I think they said like seven or something seven people yeah that's yeah. insane for a for a movie that's co-starring susan sarandon and oscars winner jk simmons um and yet that that that's how they that's how they got it done and that and I'm, i was trying to understand this other quote you had in our notes dan where it was like sure. um because obviously sarandon's just separated from everybody she they just film her parts her making yeah. this video for her son from beyond the grave but then like there's a a direct like big scene between jake and jk but they filmed it in such a way that uh johnson did his coverage and then uh, JK did his, so it seems like just like the phone scenes with Jake Johnson and Darcy Carden, um, you know, those are filmed separately, and so they did the same thing for the one big scene between uh, Johnson and Simmons, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like everything it's pieced this- together. Exactly. Yeah. And basically, there's a great quote where he's like, uh, Jake Johnson's like, I don't want to ruin anything for the audience, but everything in this movie was faked. Right. So it's like, yeah, there's no one really in the same room together. There's a couple of scenes where it looks like they're, you know, it looks like it, but they're probably not. And again, like like you said, this is this is before vaccine. So like, if you got it, like, you just can't get it, essentially, is what it comes down to. Um, it, and there's like, a, there is a gorilla sort of aspect to what they were doing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, shot the movie in 10 days. Who shoots a movie in 10 days? That makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, the one thing to that that I found a little pretty interesting is it sounds like because they had a lot of time on their hands, 
um, there was a ton of rehearsal and a ton of writing. Uh, so like we're you know we're definitely diverts uh, a lot from Mumblecore. Mumblecore I think had a lot of rehearsal, but v- the writing was a little right. bit looser. It was a lot. One of the tenets of it was improvisation, right? Right. You sketch out a basic story, but you don't actually write lines of dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like there's a, a really amazing scene in Drinking Buddies between him and Olivia. What's her Olivia Wilde, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and none of it was written. And it was, it's fantastic. It's like the very like culmination of like their emotional fight or whatever. I'm like, this is unbelievable. Totally improvised. None of those lines were written. This is not like that at all. This is definitely hyper rehearsed and, and, and maybe even overwritten on some level. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, the means of production here are, are really fascinating because it does not have any of the traditional sort of, um, sort of staff um any of the sort of guardrails of a studio production that's all out the window this is people like going up to yosemite they have a cabin um and i think jake had the cabin before they were gonna shoot the movie he's like oh i got this cabin let's go shoot up there and do it um it, yeah it's like indie filmmaking 101 um and like yeah the fact that it's like from two guys that have definitely um some cachet and connections that's an important point but at the end of the day like no one's it doesn't matter what your connections are when you're up there in the cabin trying to shoot it right it's like you got to do it uh it's like you may be able to get you know step up the bat uh, but you got to hit the ball essentially is what it comes down to um so i thought like yeah it's it's a really um interesting way that it was it was created essentially like you know shot 10 days they would get up shoot the night a uh, nice light outside then we'd come back in we'd have something to eat shoot some interiors during the day then we'd jump back outside go hard for that sort of magic hour low uh, pretty light in the afternoon uh then back at then at night we go back inside and we all eat and we we're all cooking ourselves as well uh every night so it's like almost like a communal sort of situation do you feel like and here's the one thing when i read this it's like i didn't really see that on the screen what i saw on the screen was a very sort of uh, and i'll say that i really like this movie a lot i think it's cute i think it's sweet um but how this thing was made and produced i just it doesn't translate on the screen as much like when i think of guerrilla filmmaking or indie filmmaking there's a certain aesthetic and style and experimentation that you usually see and that's not in here did you see that at all it kind of harkens back to what you're talking about like the tv direction right and i mean that that's part of the deal right is uh there's this almost i don't know like there's this juxtaposition that just doesn't that didn't quite sit well with me to be honest i think you like this movie more than i did i i admire this movie more than i enjoyed it um but uh especially after doing the research on it i think that like the professionalism and like the clean cutness of it was really at odds with a lot of the like i did i that was my first guess when the I'm watching the phone conversation between Johnson and Carden. Um, it just like, it did not feel like these two, these were two people talking to each other. And I know that's done a lot in film, not even in pandemic movies where they, you know, they just, it doesn't make sense for whatever X, Y, Z reason um, to legitimately uh, film two actors talking to each other um, when they are having a phone conversation, but it just didn't like, I, I didn't, I didn't get that connection there. Um, 
I would say like the only time where I did get tricked was that big scene between Jake and JK. I think if anything, that scene is worth the price of admission alone. It was really fun watching two very talented guys um, kind of hit off each other in a way that you wouldn't expect like a forgotten son and a current, uh, you know, mother's lover to uh, interact. Um, I think that's really enjoyable, but then also same thing with um, there's some strangeness in like the interactions between uh, Jake and his band's manager or his agent. I don't, I don't know really whatever the, get that relationship that, at all. It's so strange. Like he has to, he lives on the property of this guy who also seems to manage the band, but also just like manage Jake or Leaf personally because I don't know. It, there's it. Is there's some confusingness going on there, and every time those two actors interact, it it feels um, it feels uh, kind of forced. And I mean, the whole J- Leaf's backstory and his mother's backstory, for that matter. I just kept like waiting for the movie to dig into it, and it didn't because <laughs> it didn't want to. It Why didn't want to. Do you need to? Do you need to? This is a pandemic movie. You do need to. <laughs> I mean, this is a guy whose mom left him when he was twelve to go join a cult, and um, and maybe my brain's just engineered to like want to know everything about uh, the cult and the trauma that this kid must have endured. Um, but uh, no, he he seems like he's 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 doing okay. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's yeah. He, his backstory is a little bit light. Yeah. Um, and I think that like what I thought was interesting for a movie about a son coming to terms with his mother's death, um, there didn't seem to be a lot about what the relationship was like before she left. Right. And that was that was a little bit odd to me because it was like, well, a lot of his feelings are going to be mm, sort of planted in that time and his emotional recollection recollection of that time with her. And we don't get a lot of that. In fact, like he seems pretty flat overall yeah. uh, about his mother's death. And like, look, Jake Johnson plays that style. That's kind of who he is. He doesn't really emote all that much. Um, but you know, I, I could see how it seems a little bit um, definitely strange uh, in a movie about grief. Um, grief is rooted in emotional connection, right? Like, what was their emotional connection, if any? Right. Um, so, I, I, like, that's where, like, maybe the writing. But hey, the, the, to be defensive about it, because I'm going to be, go for um, it. I will say that, like, um, I get all of that criticism, but ultimately, I think what what makes this film click for me is it kind of goes back to how it was conceived and how it came to be. And, and he says this in a couple of interviews where he's like, we had, we basically reverse engineered it. Mm-hmm. We had these elements and then that was it. We didn't have a blank slate. We had like a small piece of clay is like what we we're going to mold this into. And to me, there is a pretty um, keen awareness of sort of the narrative elements of the story and not delving into these side paths it's very um, tight, I would say, from a narrative element, a, a narrative sort of flow. And it doesn't, it shouldn't be. Because, like, they talk about the tone going all over the place, and it does. Um, but there is this sort of propulsion to the story um, where we know, we know where it's going. 
we know that he's going to come to terms with his mother's death. You know, there's going to be some sort of release. Yeah. Uh, maybe some sort of epiphany. And they just, they hit the notes to me, at least they hit the notes at the right time in the right way. So that by the end of it, it is the journey that you expected. Um, but it feel to me, it felt very, um, uh, very pleasurable. It was a pleasurable journey. Okay. And it it kind of goes to like one of the, uh, where is this? One of the reviews. This is uh, Richard uh, Whitaker from the Austin Chronicle. He said, um, Ride the Eagle knows that a small, sad personal story doesn't have to be a tragedy. If it was a trail, it would be marked on the map as intermediate. But the view at the end is definitely worth the walk. That's exactly how I felt about this film. Uh, it, it shouldn't work. It just should not like there's not enough meat on the bones for it to be to land a really strong emotional punch. Uh, but somehow it, it comes through and I don't know how um, it sounds like you're on a little different uh, perspective than I am. Here. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, I mean, part of it is that like my I, I don't know if we've ever really talked about this on the show because my what I always want to do going into a movie that I know little about is to keep it that way as much as possible. I, I never like try to dig into our notes too much until after I actually see the movie. Cause I want to see if it works on its own merits before kind of learning its origin story. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I definitely resonated more with uh, kind of like the middle negative um, reviews. Um, Neely Swanson of easy reader said it's certainly been done worse, but it's done a whole, been a whole, lot better also uh i kind of did it made me want to do a deep dive on one of my favorite movies um five easy pieces because yeah. uh, it's it very it i mean this is, falls into that exact there's so many movies that have been like low-key um their plots lifted from the jack nicholson classic um about you know a guy that is estranged from his family and he has to face going back to them either literally or figuratively um uh, when w- either the patriarch or the matriarch dies, um, and we, I mean we've seen this over and over again. Obviously, like obviously, I'm thinking about Garden State too. Yeah. Um, and there's like something, there is something missing. I, just like I thought there was something missing in Garden State um, with regards to Ian Holmes' father character <laughs> when Zach Braff returns. Um, and there, but there's this. There's such a power going back to Jack Nicholson and his character as an oil rigger, former classical pianist coming back to his like East coast hoity toity family where it's like that juxtaposition works like gangbusters, but Mm -hmm. I get it. Like they're trying to do something smaller here. Like you've said more playful. It's not going to be as combative, but they're also using a lot of language and buzzwords that feel combative. Like, cult and like she's been trying to go to his concerts and he's been like cold shouldering her for like decades um yeah and and none of that comes out and i kept hoping that uh you know she does this list she and she reads through it susan sarandon's character on the vhs tape um these are the things you have to do if you want to inherit um the family cabin and uh none of those really hit they're just kind of like generic tasks like little scavenger hunt treasure hunt thingies that have some kind of like very um platitudinal like um you know 
express yourself or be one with nature. And like, it's just nothing ever really that interesting when I feel like if I was leaving a videotape for my kids, I would come up with something a little better than that. Well, I mean, isn't the videotape whole thing, it's kind of indicative of their relationship. Like she's trying to manipulate him beyond the grave. Right. right? There's this sort of like, and he, he, he sucked back into that relationship where she is trying to get something out of him without giving much back is really what it comes down to. But like, right. I don't know. They, I see what you're saying though. There's but just, he, he still goes through them. Like I kept one, I kept asking myself like, why is he doing it? Like what, why would he go to such lengths for this woman that he's, you know, blocked out of his life for decades? I don't, I don't well, really I understand. There's probably it. like uh yeah, I don't know. There, there's, a, <laughs> there's like a grief element to it. In fact, you said, you said this, you're funny. Pippa said the same thing when we were watching this. She's like, why is he doing this? Right? And I'm like, well, I think to him, he's just curious. He's curious about what... And he's bored, right? Yeah, he's he's directionless. He's 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 a bongo player in a band full of kids 20 years younger than him. What's this band called? Restaurant? Restaurant. What a great That that, that, that was smart. I like that. Um, Typical, like, indie, you know, whatever, (laughs) LA band or something. yeah, and I think I don't know. I think the critics, I think, are definitely more on your side of this. <laughs> and so is the like so seventy seven percent on um, Rotten Tomatoes, uh, sixty one out of a hundred, which is not great. Uh, a fifty four on Metacritic, which is also not good. The audience score is uh, pretty similar seventy six percent, seventy eight out of a hundred, definitely higher on the actual score. Letterbox I thought was fun, uh, sixty six, which is kind of decent. Um, also a sixty six on IMDb. Um, and a 74 Google rating. It, lukewarm mm. is what I would say is the response, both from critics and from just the average moviegoer. Um, why do you think that is? You know, something just popped in my head um, is like I was trying to think of something that would really make us understand, you know, the the boldness that would take to make a movie kind of guerrilla style in the middle of a pandemic um, and land such A-listers for the supporting cast, but then wind up with something that's pretty, pretty temperate, pretty lukewarm. Yeah. There's, um, there's no edge to this. Well, I kept one, I, 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 once the thing, like think probably a thing from since I was a kid is like, anytime I, press play on a movie or go to a movie and I'm just, and I don't understand why the title is the title and I'm just waiting for it to make sense during the movie. Um, And this was a classic example of just like, what the, what, what the, why the fuck is this movie called ride the Eagle? And then uh, it's just this stupid thing. Like a running gag in the film is that um, Susan Sarandon's character is a bad painter, but she, loves to paint no matter what. And she just like paints everything from like rhinoceroses having sex to um, like squirrels riding eagles. And then there's this one painting that uh, Jake's character leaf finds under his mother's bed. And it says ride the eagle on it. And they were originally going to name the movie green Lake, which is like the name of the special spot where she wants her ashes um, scattered. Um, Or they were going to call it Eleanor, which I think is, 
the mother's character's birth name, not Honey, which is the nickname that they call her throughout the film. Um, but they decided once they found this painting, and all these paintings were done by Jake Johnson's wife um, for the film, uh, they just thought it was such a silly painting that they just lifted that title from the work of art for the film. And that's kind of where it feels like I'm I I I'm at odds with the film like I think a lot of critics and maybe some other audience members too where it's like it feels like there's so much potential here there's so much things that are happening that are interesting both in the uh seeds of where this movie came from as well as with like just I mean there's a reason the five easy pieces story keeps getting done over and over again is because everybody has a story like that um at some point in their adult life where somebody dies that should have been close to them but wasn't and you have this kind of weird reaction to it um and yet they didn't really care about that so much as they cared about just you know having you know killing boredom in a cabin in a beautiful part of america during a horrible tragic event in american history uh so i just feel like that's what you end up with is like something that is kind of meh at the end of the day what I can't understand is like I definitely agree with that sentiment that like there's nothing here that really pops. Uh even from like an indie perspective, it's not like an A24 film, like that movie like they just had this trailer come out called Lamb. Have you seen this trailer? Oh yeah. <laughs> it's like that's A24. Like that to me there's a certain type of indie filmmaking that is all about sort of the sucker punch of wow, that's crazy. Hereditary is you know, a good example of that why do you i mean what i find strange about this is that like okay one i understand how it was made i understand the final result but then there's like people trying to actually distribute this thing uh like decal a new independent distributor uh launched earlier this year they bought the worldwide rights to this thing uh the uk distributor light, light bulb film distribution uh said this is kind of one of its high profile acquisitions um i i don't get like I don't see a lot of money here, I guess is what I'm saying. No. It's like, why? Who is buying this? Why are they putting it out? What's the audience? Because this was direct to VOD. Am I right in saying that? Um, um, in I think it had a very limited release. Yeah, there's like no box office numbers for it at all. Right. Yeah. So probably just New York, LA, maybe Chicago since Jake's from there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was it a... Was, uh, Bought for distribution by Decal, which is a newer um, joint venture um, into the distribution world between um, the, uh, the the pretty big indie companies Neon and Bleecker Street. So it seems like they're just trying to get off the ground. They did. It feels like they did something similar last year. A movie that was. Um, uh, seemed like it had a solid cast and maybe had enough of uh, like uh, like an Oscar bait um, hook to it that they thought maybe they could uh, um, you know domino effect it into something. It was the uh, Colin Firth, Stanley Tucci dementia buddy drama Supernova, which uh, you know had some some rave reviews, but definitely not uniform <laughs> rave reviews at Sundance uh, that came out in January of this year and just. Die, it was DOA. Totally um, DOA, yeah. Um, but they do have another movie coming out later this year, Spencer, which is the Princess Diana biopic uh, starring Kristen Stewart. So it feels like, it, I don't know, it almost feels just like, you know, rehearsal, like uh, warm ups, <laughs> you know, Supernova, Ride the Eagle, let's see, can we get in on the, you know, 
light comedy and you know make our money back can we make our money back on this like kind of serious uh illness drama um but i feel like they're probably mostly banking on Kristen Stewart to bring it home for them. I don't know. I don't see any other reason really to buy this. And same thing with the UK light bulb film distribution got it. Um, they have not really had a hit yet. They started in 2018 with a movie called Reborn. Rentapel had some uh, buzz last year. That's the Will Wheaton dark comedy about like the guy that uh, said you know you can purchase him to be your friend um, uh, yeah, on the okay. internet. Uh, but other than that, they've got, I mean, they've got a, a thriller coming out next year. That sounds kind of interesting called come true about a, a kid that does a sleep study, like um, uh, psych program thing. And then his dreams start coming to life uh, that has potential maybe, but it, it very much feels like, I don't know, since Johnson and O'Donnell are pretty low key and just were killing time um and made this movie uh for no other reason than they they could and all the pieces fit together is like they probably took any <laughs> distribution deal they could they could land because you know they self-financed and they don't really care about making their money back yeah it's sort of i don't know it has a i don't know, side project feel to it mm-hmm. like it's just mm-hmm. sort of like hey we did this let's try and make some money let's try to recoup our costs that's probably what all they cared about uh and not like they're not looking to get rich but like there is no there is no way this movie was gonna be anything other than that in like i'm surprised that it even got released in the way that it did um you know I, why didn't they sell the netflix why didn't they sell the hulu they probably like, didn't get offers i don't know <laughs> they're, but they're uh, like netflix puts out like such trash on a daily true. basis <laughs> true true that's like not even remotely decent content uh that like and they're all clamoring for content too it's like i just think it's too niche yeah right this is too, this is for like uh it's for people who uh love to hate mumblecore so mm. it's made for people like me that's it and there's maybe <laughs> 500 of me in the country <laughs> something like that any event um i don't know it's 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 definitely an interesting movie and it's definitely a movie you should watch um if you're interested in like independent filmmaking and how you write a story uh and create a film with very sort of strict restrictions on uh what on how you're making the film it's got it's just like a cool little it's a cool little art project that's what it is um i don't know what what uh what are your final thoughts on it yeah i know i like that i think that it very much has the vibe like it's uh jake johnson's wife's paintings she just did for funsies um during the pandemic that end up getting used in the film and so jake johnson being a writer and actor was looking for the equivalent of that and so it's i think that it's it's worth seeing if not like i said earlier there is a really great scene. J.K. Simmons kills it like he always does uh, in a small but vital role in the film. But the, other than that, it's, I think, worth seeing just to kind of – I do appreciate the fact that they weren't trying to make a pandemic movie about the pandemic. Um, I do appreciate that uh, there is some kind of uh, quaintness to it that you wouldn't really get from I – I can't think of another movie that this vibe-wise – feels like um because yeah it's too too uh glossy to be mumblecore and it's too small to be uh really anything 
that you would typically find on the splash page for a major streaming service. Um, it's a little one you have to dig out for, and I think those are always worth seeing. Oftentimes, much more so than like the Suicide Squad or any other you know big <laughs> blockbuster that everybody's going to see, anyways. Um, what do we got coming up next week? It's a season oh, finale, by the way. Season four finale is next week, and then we're going to take a hiatus for a little bit. Dan and I will figure out how long that'll be. Um, but with uh, back to school and the seasons changing, uh, it might be a bit. Um, we do have a fun finale in store for you. I had no idea, Dan, that you had just rewatched this a few weeks ago. Yeah. But I saw that it was coming to Hulu this month. It's uh, now available free on Hulu. Um the 1991 uh, action drama Toy Soldiers. It's the 30th anniversary. Uh, David Coop, one of his first um, produced scripts, starring Sean Astin and Will Wheaton. It is, in my memory anyways, a really fun watch, and I look forward to uh, talking about it with you next week, Dan. Awesome. I'm excited. Yeah, I just rewatched it. It's, it's one of those movies that my sister taped off of HBO. Oh, back nice. in the day and so it's definitely there's an old copy of that in my parents basement somewhere in any event uh, join us for the season finale next week toy soldiers uh this has been film trace yeah.